Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3, where we're going to be looking at verse 15. This is Old Testament Sunday. You probably didn't know it, but it has become that. So we're just sticking with the theme. You know, a lot of times people come, you know, to church twice a year, once on Easter and once on Christmas. And I'm not going to disappoint you people and tell you the same thing you've heard every other Christmas. If you're one of those people, we're getting into some serious stuff this morning. We're not going to go dealing with any some wimpy text about a little baby in a manger full of straw. We're getting into some serious stuff. This is going to challenge your thinking. You know, it'd be like walking into your kitchen and you see there a box on the table. And on the lid of that box is a picture of Mary and Jesus and Joseph, you know, and the nativity there. And you're thinking, oh, that's nice. And you open up the box and, and then you realize, oh, this is a puzzle. And there's all these pieces in here. It's going to take some serious work to get this thing put together. That's what we're going to do this morning. We are going to look at probably one of the most notoriously difficult texts in all the Bible to interpret. And I, I wouldn't have picked it if I knew it was going to be this much of a grief. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes you're just going along, your week's busy, and you think that you're just going to, all you need to do is spend your normal little 15 hours, you'll get your sermon put together, and it's just a nightmare. And the more you study, the more you realize how ignorant you are, and um, and all the things you thought you knew, you don't know. And then you're you repent of all the times you said what you've now discovered was wrong. And, oh, it's uh, it, it's a misery. Uh, this is one of those texts. I couldn't I didn't go back. And uh, finally, I got it put together and I hopefully I put it together well enough so that you can understand it. Um, when I understand it, then that's one thing. But if I can help you understand it, then that's a whole nother level of clarity that I'm trying to achieve. This text is actually called the Proto-Evangelium, which is the Latin for the first gospel or the first mention of the gospel. This is the first place in the Bible where the grace of God is mentioned. It's the first place in the Bible where Jesus is mentioned. It's the first place in the Bible where God gives a promise after the fall to fallen humanity. So it's a huge text. Uh, we probably know about the context. In chapter 1, God creates the heavens and earth in six literal 24-hour periods, days. Evening and morning, the first day, second day, not eons of time. I'm sorry. Um, uh, the Sabbath was based off of this in s- six days, and it would throw off the whole Sabbath if that was eons of time. Um, it was six days, just as we know them. God created the heavens and the earth and all they contain. And at the end of chapter 1 of Genesis, it says, And behold, everything was very good that the Lord had made. So we know at the end of the sixth day, everything was great. Then in chapter 2, at the beginning, it talks about God resting on the seventh day. And then the rest of chapter 2 talks about in more detail what happened that last day of creation, the sixth day, because that's when man was created. So God goes into a more fuller explanation, more fuller, that doesn't work, Um, a more full. I'm glad my wife's not here. She would (laughs) tell me that I mixed my superlatives or whatever. Um, God goes into a fuller definition of what happened that sixth day so that we can understand the creation of man. Now, think about this, that when God created everything on those six days, that means everything. Exodus twenty eleven says, in six days, the Lord God created the heavens and the earth and all they contain. So we know that that includes the angels. If you look at Job uh, 38, verse 7, you will discover that they were there, it seems, when God was laying the foundations of the earth, which probably tells us they were created on that first day of creation, unless you believe in two creation accounts, which the scriptures don't hint to. So, what does that mean? Why am I saying this? Because what that means is, is on the sixth day of creation... Everything was very good and angels were very good and everything was fine. So at the end of chapter two, we're really at the same place we were at the end of chapter one. Everything is still very good. It's the end of the sixth day. But when we get to Genesis three, something isn't good. 
The serpent shows up, more crafty than any beast of the field, and deceives Eve. So that tells us that somewhere after God created the heavens and the earth and all they contained in those six days, somewhere shortly thereafter, and it had to be shortly thereafter because Adam and Eve have not even had time to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and, or not that, but the, not, the tree of life. Remember, God said there's two trees. There's the tree of life. And then there's also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he says you can specifically eat of this tree of life. And if they would have ate from that tree, they would have what? Live forever. That is why after the fall, God protects them from that tree so they don't eat that tree and live forever. So somewhere shortly after creation, before Adam and Eve could go eat of the tree of life and live forever, there was rebellion in heaven. Satan convinced a third of the holy angels to rebel with him against God. And Satan, in hostility towards God, of course, can't attack God, the invisible God who is... You know, he fills heaven and earth. He's, it's kind of hard to attack somebody who's omnipresent and all-powerful. And so he then does the next thing he can do, and that is to go after God's creation, the crown of God's creation, which is man. God instills in man some of his attributes and puts him in a perfect environment. And Satan goes, okay, God has said that if these people eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, they're going to die. And that's what I want. I'm going to kill the crown of God's creation, mankind. And so this is what we read in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and following. Follow along in your Bibles. I read down through verse 19, and then we'll get to our text so you can understand its context. Genesis 3, 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees in the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. When the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then Adam then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you not commanded you saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you in toil. You will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall grow for you and you will eat 
the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because it, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Well, that is the account of the fall. And uh, in the middle of this, we have Genesis 3.15. Martin Luther said of this text, it, quote, and embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in the scriptures, end quote. That is a pretty grand statement, isn't it? You're thinking, are you sure? Well, we'll wait and see. From Genesis 3.15, I'm going to show you two wars and one victory. If you understand these two wars... And this victory, you will have understood the meaning and glory of Christmas. First, we have the conflict between Satan and Eve. Now, I just want you to know, before we get into it here, that this single verse can be divided up into three portions, three different parallel phrases that tell us different things. So we're, we're, it's actually a bit of Hebrew poetry. So we would expect to have parallelism. It says in verse 15, if you look there, God still speaking curses and judgments upon the serpent says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. The little and there uh, at the beginning of verse 15 um, tells us that God is still speaking uh, curses down in judgments. Uh, in verse 14, he literally judges snakes, those slithery reptiles, and says, uh, I'm going to curse you um, among all the other beasts. In verse 15, however, it seems that he makes a change. There is a switch from the literal creature um, to... Uh, the creature that was using the literal creature. Um, he says to the snake, the literal snake, you will eat dust. And, uh, you know, eat dust is uh, just kind of a Hebrew idiom for total defeat. We still use it, don't we? Don't, man, that guy bit the dust, you know? You lick the dust or whatever. That, those phrases are also found in the Old Testament. It reminds me of a time... I don't know why I decided to lick one of the screens on our window when I was little. (laughs) And I thought that was dumb. (laughs) Not as bad as when I decided to lick something extremely cold, the frost off the inside of the freezer. But, uh, you know, after one licking of some dust, um, you realize that that does not taste good. Um, so those phrases just talk of total defeat, um, overrun the word. And at the beginning of verse 15 tells us God is still speaking. But again, he's speaking now to the instrument that used or, or to Satan who used the instrument, the snake. You say, well, how do we know that? How do we know that he's speaking of Satan? Well, there's a couple things. First, we gain some clues from the near context. The serpent talked. And uh, just in case you've never noticed, if you've never been around snakes, they don't talk. Unless, of course, you're in Narnia, but that's a whole different story. Um, Apparently, Eve, being newly created, didn't know serpents were supposed to talk. And so she has a conversation with the snake. Doesn't think anything about it. She's innocent and doesn't know. But serpents don't talk. This one did. God speaks to the serpent. And serpents don't understand intelligible language. But this one does. All this tells us that this snake is intelligent, evil, and purposely deceived Eve. We get a little um, verification of its intent to do evil in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, where Paul says to the Corinthian believers, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Where here Paul affirms that the serpent was an intelligent being who was crafty and who sought to deceive Eve. This is not something that uh, normal snakes do. Where we find out the 
clear identity of the serpent here in the garden is in the book of Revelation. There's actually two texts. I'm just going to read one. They're very close, almost identical. They employ the same phrases. This is in Revelation chapter 12. I want you to just remember Revelation 12 because it's going to show up a few more times. But in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, John is describing a conflict that happens in heaven. During the tribulation, as time runs out for Satan uh, and his demonic minions, they have access into heaven, but during the tribulation, there is a point at which God just expels them from heaven. A lot of people think of um, that happening in Genesis. No, um, we see Satan in heaven uh, throughout the scriptures. He's in heaven, um, in Job, he's falling from heaven like lightning in uh, Luke 10. He is the prince of the power uh, of the air, the, the world forces of darkness in the heavenlies in Ephesians 6. Um, we keep seeing him interacting. He is the accuser of the brethren who is in heaven, accusing God before the throne of God day and night. But in Revelation 12, during the tribulation, he is permanently cast down. And so this is describing what what happened? Revelation 12 verses 7 through 9 says, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, the dragon and his angels waging war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. From texts like these, it is clear that the serpent of old is the devil and Satan and the dragon of Revelation. So in Genesis 3.15, God is no longer cursing literal snakes, but the intelligent being behind the snake or that was either took the form of a snake or possessed the snake. We don't know which. And he says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. Now, what does this word enmity mean? It's not really a word we use a lot. I mean, I have never heard, I don't think anybody ever say, well, I meant enmity with that person. Um, it's just not a word we use a lot, but it means conflict at odds with hostile to, you know, if you were having an argument with somebody and, you know, you couldn't be reconciled, you would be at enmity with them. Um, that's what it means. So here, um, Everything up to this point in, in the verse is pretty clear, but that's where it ends. I just want you to know we're now lear- leaving the land of what is easy into the land of what is very difficult. So you, you will have to, I beg you by the mercies of God, try and think extra hard. Um, I had to do it this week. You're going to have to do it this morning. It's just part of a text like this. And I'm sorry we aren't talking about little baby Jesus in the manger right now, but we'll get there eventually. So we've identified that Satan is being addressed when he talks about, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. The question is, who is the woman? Who is the woman being referred to here? Well, commentators disagree. Some say he is referring to all women collectively or anyone who qualifies as a woman. In other words, some people say that a woman here just personifies anybody who's a woman. Satan is against women. You know, this is probably the feminist uh, uh, interpretation where, you know, he's out to get us. Um, That anybody who qualifies as a woman, Satan is against. Why? Because it is women who give birth to children and one of those women is going to give birth to the Messiah and therefore, um, you know, maybe it's, he's at odds with all women. And um, it's very tempting to go on a long rabbit trail here, but we're going to continue. Secondly, some have said he is referring to all of mankind that would come from the woman, not just the female of the species, but everyone. Uh, You say, well, why why would you take this? Well, if you look down at verse 20 of Genesis 3, now we, uh, Eve is described there as the mother of all the living. So near context, she is called the mother of all the living. So you could say, well, in a way, she kind of represents all of mankind since all people, you know, had their origin and were given birth through Eve. 
And so if that was the case, we would read the text. I will put conflict between you, Satan, and all men, all mankind. Three, another way that people have read this is that he is referring to a specific woman. And what they say, the woman that he's referring to here is obviously the woman who gives birth to the redeemer who crushes the serpent's head. um, And therefore, that person must be Mary. Mary, of course, as you can imagine, this finds favor with Roman Catholics who worship Mary and exalt her and want to read her in. I will it will read this way. I will cause conflict between you, Satan and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Or another interpretation is that the woman represents Israel, Israel, through whom the Messiah would come. Not Mary specifically, but Israel as a nation. And there is a very interesting text which kind of lends some credence to this interpretation. Revelation 12. If you were here last year, I preached on Revelation 12 and the woman clothed in the sun and uh, whose baby uh, was about to be devoured by the dragon. Somebody's brought up their daughter's little christmas notes uh um to me it had this big dragon trying to eat this baby and said yeah this is my daughter got out of your sermon um (laughs) it's a good she was listening uh but this is what the text says now this is right before the text i just read that tells us the identity of of the serpent of old being the devil and satan this is in the few verses right before that it says and his tail speaking of the dragon who represents satan his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven the stars are a reference to um angels for instance well the job 38 7 verse talks about when the sons of god and the stars sang together um, angels are sometimes referred to as stars and um, here a third of the angels are swept away he threw them to earth and the dragon who stood before the woman who was about to give birth and this woman is israel about ready to give birth to the messiah um, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Jesus, if you remember, Herod tried to, right after Jesus was born, um, Herod being a pawn of Satan, um, was used by Satan to do, try to exterminate the messianic line as he tried other times. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, which sounds like a reference to Isaiah 9, 6 that Tim read earlier. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. That is, during the tribulation, that last seven-year period leading up to the second coming of Christ to earth, what happens is, is this Antichrist figure arises and then begins to persecute Israel, uh, the Jews, the chosen people of God, who have given birth to this Messiah who is saving the world. And of course, Israel then has to flee um, from persecution. So that is a pretty interesting interpretation. However, there is one other one that I think is better. And that is this. The woman being addressed is Eve. They say, well, why would you take that one? Well, one, Eve is the only woman around when this is being given. Um, in the near context, if you look at the end of verse or the middle of verse 13, it says, and the woman. And then if you look at the very next verse after our verse to the woman, in both of those instances, he's speaking to Eve. So when he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, the other two women before and after are both Eve. She's the only woman in existence at the time. And so I think that's the best way to take it. Um, that the woman being referred to is Eve. But this then raises another little difficulty. And why would God tell the serpent that he would be in conflict or at odds with Eve? I mean, after all, he has already deceived Eve. And Eve is already going to die physically because of her sin. And so why would, I mean, he's undone her. Why would he be at odds with her? Well, it's because Eve was sorry she had sinned and sought salvation from the consequences of her sin by trusting in the promises of God. You say, well, how do you know that? 
Well, we know this from Genesis chapter 4.1. Look there. Genesis 4.1. This is the near context again. It says, now the man had relations with his wife Eve. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. Now, the Hebrew here literally reads, I have gotten a man child, the Lord. Uh, the New American Standard and other translations add with the help of or from the Lord. Um, but those words are not in the text the, you know, the, this, the, the literal hardcore Meaning is, I have produced a man, the Lord. Which tells us that here, Eve is anticipating that she is going to give birth to this Redeemer that is mentioned at the end of Genesis 3.15, as we shall see. And so she's looking for and hoping in God and his promises. She is trusting in the Lord. She's thinking about God delivering her from the consequences of her own sin by this promised male. Well, of course, if you know the story, uh, Cain turned out to be a dud. I mean, he was wicked. He slew his brother Abel, who was righteous. And I'm sure that this caused Eve great grief because Cain was wicked And Abel comes along and he's godly, but then Cain kills him. And so what would you expect her to do? Look for another person who would come, who would be that promised deliverer. Well, look at Genesis 4, verse 25. Which says, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Cain was still alive, but he was wicked. Abel was godly. He died. Seth is another godly person and just so happens to be the person through whom the Messiah comes. He's kind of, you've probably heard of the godly line of Seth. Here it is. Now, what's also interesting, when it says God has appointed for me another offspring, if you have the New American Standard, a study Bible, you probably see a little one there. And in the margin, it says seed. Um, I think the uh, New King James and the King James both have seed here. In other words, God has pointed for me another seed in place of Abel. Now, why would that be significant? Because in our text, there is a promised Seed, which we're going to look at. Um, we're getting up. We're getting there. And so here we see this. Eve then is the one who believes the promises of God, trusts and hopes in the promises of God and waits in anticipation for them to be fulfilled. She is kind of the prototypical believer, so to speak, of all those who come after, who believe in God's promises and trust for that Redeemer to come to deliver them. So in this first part of the verse, we have, I will put enmity between you, conflict between you, Satan, and Eve. Eve is hoping and trusting in me. You are in rebellion against me. There is enmity there because you have different worldviews and purposes. Second. Conflict is between Satan's seed and the woman's seed. And if you thought that was tricky, this is really nasty. I am telling you, this really hurt my brain. There's not a lot of texts that torment me like this one has. When we come to this middle part of the verse, we've dealt with the first part of the verse. We're looking at the middle part of the verse, and we've got a third part of the verse. It's Hebrew poetry. So we have Satan, an individual and even individual, then we get to this middle part of the verse, and he says, and between your seed and her seed. And you think, well, what's the big deal? That's a little short phrase. I mean, come on, that can't be that difficult. Well, the word seed is translated some 24 different ways in the New American Standard Bible. Thankfully, that's not a problem, because almost everybody agrees it should be translated offspring or descendant or descendants here in the text. So that's the easy part. So when we're talking about in between 
your seed and her seed, we're talking about descendants, offspring, those who will come and after. Now, this is where it gets tricky because the word seed is one of those interesting little words that sometimes is what is called a composite singular. You think, what is that? Let's say that you, I buy a sack of a hundred pound sack of seed. Now I can use the singular. That is seed. A, a, a whole sack of seed singular, even though it's composed of what many little seeds. It's like the fruit of the spirit, the fruit. And it's singular in the Greek. The single fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness. You know, all of those things make up the one fruit. That's called a composite singular. Well, this is one of those tormenting words. And you say, well, why is it tormenting? Well, it's tormenting because the text is either talking about Satan's many descendants and Eve's many descendants or Satan's single descendant and Eve's single descendant. Or Satan's many descendants and Eve's single descendant. Or Eve's many descendants and Satan's single descendant. Think of only six options because that word was used. All right. So what is the right answer? Well, first let's talk about who is the descendant or are the descendants of Satan? Who are the offspring of Satan? Well, right off the bat, we know something. Satan being an angel cannot be producing a physical line like Eve can. So we know that the, his descendants must be spiritual uh, in some sense. These are some ideas that people have had. One, some say that it refers to all humanity. Why? Because when you look at the Bible, you discover that everybody is conceived in sin, born in sin, go astray from birth. All men are desperately wicked and deceitful above all else. The scriptures say that we all walk according to the prince of the world. The, uh, Paul says it in Ephesians 2, uh, walk according to his ways. We are by nature children of wrath. We are held captive by him to do his will. And so in that sense, we're all kind of of Satan, aren't we, before coming to Christ. So some have taken that view. And if that's the case, the text might read, I will put enmity between all humanity and her seed. Or it might refer to Satan and the angels who rebelled against God. And for the same reasons, just as uh, those who are wicked kind of are the spiritual offspring of Satan. So you could say, well, those holy angels who rebelled against God became demons and sided with Satan against God. They are kind of his spiritual children. And therefore, the text is really saying, um, uh, and between all demons and her seed. And, you know, when you look at the scriptures, you know that demons, of course, are against um, uh, people. They want to undo people, deceive people, see them led to hell. So that one kind of works. Or am I referred to the Antichrist who during the tribulation receives his power from Satan and represents him on earth? And when you look at the text that describe the Antichrist, the Antichrist is both kind of human and he's demonic as he is possessed or empowered by satan um, he is an imposter satan kind of incarnate so to speak and so it's tempting to interpret this as and between the antichrist and her seed it might also refer to all unbelievers who, because of their unbelief, are enslaved to sin and Satan, live according to Satan. They never repent. They live in constant rebellion against God, just like Satan does. And I think this is the best interpretation. I think this is the best interpretation. Because remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees who wouldn't believe in him, wouldn't submit to him, were in rebellion against God, were trying to kill him. He says in John eight forty four, you are of your father, who? The devil. You are of your father, the devil. That is, you are the descendants, the spiritual seed, so to speak, the offspring of your father. And you remember why Jesus said that? Because you do the deeds of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And of course, that's what they were trying to do is murder him. 
You know, I just, I spent hours. I spent hours reading commentary after commentary, trying to find somebody who was brave enough to say the seed of the serpent is. I could not find that person. They were so extremely slippery. They would kind of skip ahead and talk about the woman. I said, come on, lay it on me. Well, I'm telling you, my view is that Satan's seed represents all unbelievers who, like Satan, are opposed to God, will not submit to God, and follow in the footsteps of Satan and are, so to speak, his spiritual children, as Jesus called the religious leaders. Now, remember how we said that the word seed can refer to one or many It can either be a single thing or a composite thing seen as one. Well, remember, we're dealing here with Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry is very symmetrical. And because it's very symmetrical, and because we've said that Satan's seed or offspring represent all unbelievers, then it needs to match that the woman's seed is another group, not one. Because that would destroy the Hebrew parallelism. The question is, who is the woman's seed now? Here are some options. One, the woman's seed or offspring is the entire human race. You know, she's the mother of all the living, as we've just said. And you say, well, that works. I said, yeah, but the problem there is, is included in the entire human race are believers and unbelievers. Then you have unbelievers being both Satan's children and Eve's offspring. And then you got two parents that doesn't work. Or maybe the woman's seed is Jesus Christ. The problem with that, even though, you know, there's some good arguments for that because actually Jesus is the one who crushes the serpent head. And in the last part of the verse, we're going to get there. Um, you say, well, that seems to work pretty good. But then that you destroy the Hebrew parallelism where you have a plural thing and then you have a singular thing. And that, and that doesn't work either. Or maybe the woman's seed is Abel and all the godly people that like Abel trusted in God and believed in the promises of God like Seth that that whole godly line that really started with Eve and went all the way down through how about that I think that works pretty good Um, why you say well there is an interesting text which sheds some significant light here and guess where it is Revelation 12 (laughs) you know It was amazing how many times this text kept coming up. Revelation 12, 17. Now, we've talked about earlier in the verse and then uh, in the middle of verse. And now we're towards the end of the chapter. And we read this. The same discussion is going on between the dragon and how he is at war and been cast down to earth and all of this. And he said, and this is what it says in Revelation 12, verse 17. Now, we're trying to figure out who are the seed of or offspring of um, the woman, where it says, and between your seed and her seed, your unbelievers who follow after you in rebellion against God, and her what? Revelation twelve seventeen. So the dragon, Satan, was enraged with the woman, Israel, And went off to make war with the rest of her children. Now the word children here in the Greek literally is seed. Interesting, isn't it? Went off to make war with her seed. And who are they? Who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The woman's seed here are who? Those who hold the commandments of God and the testimony, in other words, they're what? Believers. The woman's seed being believers. The woman in this context is Israel, coming from the godly line of Seth. Jesus is the Messiah who comes from that line. All believers follow in the footsteps of Eve, Abel, Seth, all the way down. They trust in God. They hope in God. They rely on the promises of God. You read through the Old Testament, and Satan is always against what God is doing, trying to destroy this godly line, especially the messianic line. I mean, he got to the couple times where he got it down to like one person, like Josiah, the only person. If if Satan could have just killed Josiah, he could have snuffed out Jesus. 
And even after Jesus is born, he still tries to snuff him out. And, you know, Herod goes out and does the blanket execution of all the infants looking to snuff out the Messiah. Of course, he fails. He fails to do that. We know that Satan is at war with all believers. I mean, that's what we're told in Ephesians 6, right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but is against the world forces of darkness and the heavenly realms. We're in this battle, and it's the battle between Satan and the demonic forces against those who would do what is right. Thus, I think the text should read, and between all unbelievers and all believers who fall in the footsteps of Abel and Seth and Eve. So, see if you can picture this in your mind. we got the text. It's divided up into three parts. The first phrase talks about, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and Eve. One person, Satan, one person, Eve. Then between your descendants or offspring, seed, and her descendants, offspring, seed. And who are the descendants and offspring of Satan? A collective group, unbelievers. A collective group, believers. We got that okay? Okay, good. Now, <clears throat> we come to the last part of the text, which, again, um, is, is complex. But I just want to make one more little interesting little comment here. Okay, actually a couple. Um, it's this. What we're going to discover here is the fate of Satan is tied up in the fate of everything that comes after. Whatever happens to that corporate group of unbelievers is going to happen to Satan, right? If they're judged and cast into hell, guess what? It happens to Satan. So Satan is kind of inextricably linked to the fate of those that follow this Hebrew parallelism. The same is true with Eve, right? If believers who trust and hope in the promise of God, that whole group of believers of all the ages are delivered from the consequences of their sin, so is who? Eve. So Eve and Satan both have connections, inextricable connections to the corporate groups that follow them. Now, when we get to the last third of the verse, we have to decide what's going on there And what's going on there is going to happen to the groups above that, which is going to happen to the individuals above that. So it's very, it is amazingly complex. And when you put it all together, it's, it is cool. Now here, another little side note. When we talk about a woman's seed, that is kind of a unique thing. It appears a few times in the Bible. But it's not normal. We just read one of the instances of in Revelation 12 about the woman and her offspring, her seed. And that is a very kind of rare thing. And almost every place it occurs, it always talks about a man and a woman giving birth to a child or to seed or descendant. But we know, since we've seen the cover of the lid, that... Mary was what? A virgin. A virgin. So in this text also seems to be this hint of the virgin birth that this woman, apart from, because what we're doing is we're starting at that time in the garden, looking forward to all those who will follow. And then now we're going to look at the two people as individuals who culminate everything That represents the whole, that represents the individuals in the garden. The victory of the woman's seed. So look at verse 15 again. Towards the end, in that lowest third, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The first he here is singular. All All the pronouns here are singular. So what does that mean? That means we're talking about the woman a single male that comes from the woman and her descendants, the believers and trusters in God, who will bruise the rebellers and the ones who will not trust and hope in God, those who are in opposition to God. 
Now, the word bruise here might also be translated to crush or strike. It is probably best to translate the word crush here for reasons I'm going to mention in a minute. So some male person will arise, a single male person will arise from the woman. And remember, whatever happens to the group happens to Eve. So it's like they're all connected. From that godly line, there's going to be one male person who is going to crush the head of a single male person in the line of ungodliness. That's the parallelism. It's pretty apparent. Both individuals bruise and strike one another. But the location of the injury determines the severity. The one is crushed in the head, which is a mortal wound. The other is bruised in the heel. And, you know, if you bruise your heel, you get over it. The picture being painted here is of a man stepping on a serpent with his heel so as to crush the life out of the snake. And I have done this multiple times. Um, I've been fly fishing and going down the trail. There's a rattlesnake in the trail. I turn my fly rod around. I get the butt of the fly rod and pin its head down, step in its head, then off its head comes with the knife. And the whole idea is that, you know, you grind them in and crush them. And I had boots on. It didn't bruise my heel. The whole point here is that, yes, though the the serpent is having its life crushed out from a mortal wound to the head. And though that process inflicts some injury to the heel, the injury to the heel is minor compared to the fatal blow of the head of the serpent. And there just happens to be a text in the New Testament that uses this same imagery. It's when Paul is concluding his letter to the Romans, and he says this in Romans 16, verse 20, Speaking to believers, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. That's the same kind of imagery drawn from Genesis 3.15, which also is an allusion to the woman's seed being believers as they will participate in the defeat of Satan. Though Jesus is the one who gets ultimate victory, we are all fighting against um, Satan and and what he is trying to accomplish in this world by obeying God. So we are fellow soldiers. We are God's warriors. We fight the good fight to bring about the will of God here on earth, which is to see people delivered from the consequences of their sin. Satan, on the other hand, wants to see people suffer the consequences of their sin. Let me just give you a couple texts which speak of this. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 is uh, pretty explicit. Speaking of Jesus, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That is, Jesus partook of the flesh and blood. That is, he became a man. He became incarnate, God incarnate, God in human flesh. It says that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Satan has two weapons, two, you know, huge cannons that he uses against us. And what are they? Sin and death. He knows, as he did in the garden, that if he could get Eve to sin, God would have to keep his word and he would have to judge Eve because he always keeps his word. He's God. And so Satan knows that if he can deceive her into sinning, then God will destroy Eve for him. Which is why his plot was so diabolical. However, Jesus steps in and he disarms Satan of his two huge weapons. Why? Because in dying on the cross, he took on human flesh, he died on the cross, and he made atonement for sin, and in rising from the dead, conquered death, and therefore he took Satan's weapons away from him, and now those who place their faith in Christ can be set free. John, in 1 John 3, verses 7 through 9, says this, 
As I read this, I want you to look for the two seeds. That is, the ungodly who follow the line of Satan and the godly who follow in the line of Eve. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Here in this text, we see the two lines, don't we? We have those who practice righteousness, those who practices evil. Those who practice righteousness are of the devil are of his offspring, are his children. Those who are of God practice righteousness because they have placed their faith in Christ. One group is delivered, the other group is judged. And there's many other texts we could use, but we don't have time. So Satan knew that when if he tempted Eve, he could destroy her by God's faithfulness to his own promise because he is the God who will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. But Jesus then steps in And Jesus takes our sin upon himself. He dies the death we should have died. He bears the punishment that Adam and Eve and all those who would ever believe. He takes all of that punishment and he bears it on them so that he would become the substitute of those who trust in God. He would become that substitute and rescue them from their sin. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He made atonement. He rose from the dead and conquered death. And then Satan doesn't have anything to throw at us. He can't say, well, but you sinned. But yeah, I'm forgiven in Christ. But yeah, if you sin, you've got to die. Yes, but I am in Christ and he rose from the dead. Well, we're saved. We're delivered. So God, without setting aside his justice, without setting aside his justice, made a way. And that's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin, right? You know why? Because sin is always passed down through who? The man. And so if Jesus is going to be born without a sin nature, which is passed down through Adam, he has to be born still of a woman, but not of anybody in the line of Adam. So God is his father, making him perfect. Adam or uh, uh, Mary is his mother, making him human. He is both human. He is both divine. He is perfect. He is able to live that perfect life and die a death that we should have died. So through faith in him, we can have the free gift of eternal life. That is the great message of Christmas. Now, one more thing, whose head gets crushed? And I would say, well, obviously the serpent, the serpent. But wait a second. Wait a second now. Remember the Hebrew parallelism. Now, it is true. Remember we said, whatever happens down the line happens to Satan and Eve. So if the group gets rescued, Eve gets rescued. If the group gets judged, Satan gets judged. Now, of course, we would say that Satan, of course, is has his head crushed, he is defeated by Jesus, which is obviously true, we wouldn't deny that. But when you think about this, Jesus represents those who are godly. He is perfectly godly, isn't he? He comes in that godly line, he is perfectly godly. But think about this. Think about this. We could say that... Sticking to the Hebrew parallelism here, that there is going to come one individual, male individual, from this ungodly line who is like Christ but represents Satan, who is defeated, and his defeat represents the defeat of Satan and all unbelievers, and who have who chooses to rebel against God just like Satan. Somebody who maybe is a world ruler, like Christ will be a world ruler. Somebody who receives a mortal wound, but then comes back to life and kind of has his own resurrection. Somebody 
who claims to be God, just like Jesus, somebody who requires everybody to worship him, everybody to bow the knee or else they get the axe, but who isn't Jesus, but is very similar to Jesus, and that would be who? The Antichrist. The Antichrist. The Antichrist is Satan's man. He represents Satan on earth. He receives his power from Satan. He goes forth deceiving the world, just as Jesus did miracles to win converts to himself. So Satan comes onto the scene with all lying signs and false wonders and deceptions to deceive, if possible, even the elect. He is the fake Jesus who comes from the ungodly line. And the defeat of the Antichrist is the defeat of all unbelievers, is the defeat of Satan, just like the victory of Jesus is the victory of all believers, is the victory of Eve. And that, people, is the meaning of Christmas. That is it. I want to read to you from Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. This talks about the defeat of Satan just right at the, just the second coming of Christ. And we read this. This is when Jesus comes back to finish the work that he had promised in Genesis 3.15. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat in it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And his armies, which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of the God, the almighty and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written king of kings and Lord of lords. And then down in verse 20, we read and the beast was seized that the beast is the antichrist. And with him, the false prophet who performed signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword, which came out of the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And of course, Revelation 20 through 22 goes on to explain how all those who, like Satan, rebelled against God, all the unbelievers of all the ages, all those who are personified in this Antichrist figure are all judged and cast into the fire. Those who, like Eve, trusted in the promises of God, hoped in the promises of God, tried to follow God, those are all rescued Because of the one, the ultimate one in that line. And what is amazing is there is this huge reversal that takes place. Satan in the garden thought that he, in deceiving Eve, would bring the judgment of God upon Eve and he would escape. But what happens is, because of what Christ did, because of his life, because of his death, he then turns everything around so that Eve, who sinned, goes free. Because of her faith in the promises of God and Satan, who instigated the rebellion, is judged along with all the unbelievers, along with the Antichrist who followed him. And so when we come to Genesis 3.15, what we have here is the grand plan of Christmas stuck in this verse. That there would be this baby who would be born of a virgin to live a perfect life, to die and rise again so that all through faith in him could, like Eve, could, like all the believers in all the ages, be delivered by that male child, Jesus Christ. So, when you leave here today, keep that in mind. We're not talking about chestnuts roasting on an open fire. We're not talking about eggnog and Christmas lights. We're talking about the victory of Christ over sin and death 
and his free offer of salvation to anyone who believes. Come to me, he says, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As many as receive me, I will give you the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in my name. And if you have not done that, I pray you would do that this morning. Christ will save you for he has gained the victory by overcoming sin and death and crushing the Satan's head through his victory on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. What a great God you are. I just thank you that your word is so amazing. And even though some scriptures are very hard to understand and interpret, Yet we thank you for godly men who have come before and done so much work. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the rest of your word, which gives us clues so that if we study hard enough, we can usually figure it out. Father, we pray for anybody here who doesn't know Christ, who is still an offspring following their spiritual father, Satan, who will not submit to God's will. Father, I pray that they would see that they are on the wrong side, that they would become traitors to their cruel master who seeks only to deceive, delude, and destroy them, that they would turn to Christ who seeks only to love, to cherish, and rescue them from the wrath to come. Father, may some do that here this morning by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. For the rest of us, may we leave here rejoicing this Christmas and not forgetting the great promise that you made in Genesis 3.15 and how you will see it through to the end, even in the future from now. We look forward to it as Eve did and all believers of all the ages. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.